0: Well, good morning. Thank you, Keith, for uh, putting up with that slightly long scripture reading. Appreciate that. I wanted us all to, to hear the, the story there before we considered, considered God's word in some detail. Um, you know, since my eye surgery, I've had some trouble with dry eye. But i got to tell you, during that uh, worship time, uh, <clears throat> my eyes weren't dry. <laughs> uh, so I was praying that the Lord would help me to see properly and he helped me out there. <clears throat> so thank you, uh, David and Stephanie for, and uh, Becca for leading us in worship. Um, before I get started with the sermon, I wanted to uh, say Happy Mother's Day to everybody. Uh, when I think of what a mom is, usually the first thing that comes to my mind is what Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. The reason these words of Jesus come to mind is that I know that being a mom, I know what <clears throat> that being a mom means just that, loving someone with so great a love that you willingly lay down your life for that person. Having witnessed my wife endure the process, I know that a mom literally sacrifices her very body to carry her child, to give birth, and to nurture the baby through those early months. I also know that a mom uh, continues to sacrifice. She has to sacrifice her pride, humbling herself to serve the needs of her child, to feed, to clean, to protect, and to train and to teach. And a mom also sacrifices pursuit of what the world around her nowadays regards as success to give priority to her children's needs, her children's development, even over her own. A mom is called to love with that kind of self-sacrificial love. To the extent that a mom truly mirrors Jesus, a mom makes these sacrifices joyfully, and without expecting anything in return. That's because she knows that her self-sacrificial love for her children is ultimately self-sacrificial love for God. Her life given in service to her children is a life given in service to her Savior. Her love lavished on her children is ultimately love for and from the one who first loved her. She understands that she only has a life to lay down because Jesus gave his life for her so that she might have life. She only has strength to serve because Jesus put his spirit in her that she might have that strength. She only has that love with which to love her children because Jesus put his love in her heart so that she might love. And so to the extent that she mirrors Christ, the Christian mom, gives freely and abundantly because she has received freely and abundantly from her Lord. I'm sure you're you're familiar with Proverbs 31. There the writer says that children of such a mom rise up and bless her, her husband also, And he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. And I wanted to take a moment to do that this morning, to rise up and bless our moms and praise them. But I wanted to flip the script a little bit and ask, if you are a mom, could you please stand? And as you rise up, the rest of us will bless you and praise you and thank you with a round of applause. So if you're a mom here with us this morning, if you're able, if you could stand. Just thank you. We thank the Lord for each of you and the sacrifices that you've made. Having celebrated moms that are here today, I also want to acknowledge those children here who are grieving the loss of a mom or a dad. I also want to acknowledge those moms and dads who are grieving the loss of a child this morning. I want you all to know that when one member of the body suffers, all members suffer with it. That your family in Christ here at New Village grieves with you. Know, too, that we are all here to fellowship with each other in our griefs and to comfort those who mourn to the degree that we are able. And know, too, that God is present in your grief. I hope you'll see that in the the sermon this morning. God is present in your grief, and he comforts those who mourn. Today we're going to spend some time together looking at the book of Job. And it is my earnest prayer that as we do, those who mourn and those who suffer will draw strength and comfort from God through the truth of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our moms. We thank you for the sacrifices that they make. And Lord, as we look uh, into the book of Job and consider the sufferings of Job and the mourning and lamenting of Job, Father, I just pray you would speak to us to help us see your plan and your purpose, your goodness and your love And most of all, your sovereignty through all that we encounter in our lives. I just pray you bless our time together in the word and uh, that the hearers of, of what I have to say, Lord, would hear you speaking and not me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So loss, grief, suffering, disease, death. Over the past few years, I myself have felt surrounded, almost hedged in by various evils and suffering. I've experienced what you could say is a new revelation of how difficult life just can be. I have a new understanding of grief, loss, and suffering. In my life, friends and relatives, more than a couple, have departed this world recently. I've seen up close and personal the crippling consequences of a stroke, of traumatic brain injury, the challenges of memory loss. As a result, I've gained a new perspective on challenges faced by those among us Who care long-term for disabled family members of all ages and my spirit has been burdened to hear of loved ones fighting diseases and addictions and very recently the tragic death of of a 19 year old on fire for jesus student at my my daughter's college all of us have been touched by tragedy and corporately we know as a church even we continue to fight an uphill battle against the evil one who seeks to destroy us these tragedies that surround us. The loss, the grief, the suffering, disease, and death. They're all around us. They're inescapable. They're part and parcel of life in a fallen world. They're also part and parcel of Christian living. We began this morning by celebrating moms and I spoke loftily of what a, what a Christ-like mom looks like. A woman who self-sacrificially lays her life down for her children. But you know, it's not just a mother's love for her child that should look like Jesus' is self-sacrificial love. Jesus calls us all to love each other as he loved us. He says, This is my commandment. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Right? Greater love is no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. That means that I'm commanded to love my mom, my dad, my wife, my wife's mom and dad, my kids, my Christian brothers and sisters, my colleagues at work, my friends, my neighbors, even my enemies with a selfless, Christ-like Self-sacrificial love. I understand these are, these are lofty words. This is a high, high standard. But it seems all the higher when we consider we are called to live out this sex, self-sacrificial love in a world that's full of suffering. And two, self-sacrificial love, laying down one's, one's life, it necessarily involves suffering. You know, Jesus said if we want to follow him, we need to do what? Deny ourselves take up our cross, and follow him. That whoever wishes to to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. So this call to live a Christ-like self-denial comes to us necessarily in the face of suffering and loss. Suffering is inherent, you could say, to Christ-like living. Enduring trials and tragedies is an inescapable reality for those of us who follow Christ. But it's a lot easier to talk about self-sacrificial Christ-like love than it is to live it out. What happens when the costs of truly laying down my life start to pile up? What happens when we are faced with tragedy after tragedy, sorrow upon sorrow? How can we continue to devote ourselves to loving and serving God and to loving and serving our neighbor in the midst of the evils of this world? Well, About 3,000 years ago, a man named Job confronted this question. Uh, with everything that's been going on in my, in my life, I've been drawn over and over to read through the book of Job over the last couple of years, searching for insights. One of the things I've learned is that the truth, or more specifically God's truth, is a powerful tool that God has given us to respond to the suffering we face as we strive to follow Jesus. This morning I want to unpack some of these truths that emerge from Job's trials, and I hope that this will be helpful to all of us. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story that we read this morning. And if you want to follow along, I will be jumping around the book of Job quite a bit. It starts on page 608, Job 1. And so you can uh, follow along there. In Job 1.1, as we read this morning, Job is introduced to us as as blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. So Job was blessed in all respects. We read that he had seven sons and three daughters. It's apparent that they lived together in a loving and and supportive community. Each son would host a feast in his own house on his appointed day, and he'd invite the entire family to join in. And Job continually offered burnt offerings on behalf of each of them to ensure that their sins were atoned for. So you would say that Job enjoyed a rich spiritual and family life. He was also materially wealthy. The Bible enumerates his possessions in terms of hundreds and thousands of sheep, camels, oxen, and donkeys. And he had many servants as well. And in, in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he was known as the greatest man in all the region. So he was a good man, you would say, a good man living a good life. He loved, revered, and worshipped God. And then as we read earlier in Job chapter 1, verse 6, Satan appeared before the Lord to challenge Job's commitment to God. Satan's claim was this, Job only reveres you, God, because you have blessed him so greatly. So put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, Satan suggests, and Job will surely curse you to your face. And as we read earlier, God gives Satan a free hand to do what he will with Job's family and Job's possessions. And Satan takes full advantage of the license that he's given. He strikes all that Job has his oxen, his donkeys, his camels, they're stolen by two different raiding parties. His sheep are struck dead by some kind of tremendous blast of lightning. All but four of his servants servants sorry are killed in various catastrophes. And finally, all of his children are killed when they are gathered together at the eldest son's house and a great wind causes the house to fall on them. But that wasn't the full extent of Job's suffering. When Job persisted in his devotion to the Lord, Satan persisted in his schemes to drive a wedge between Job and God. He appears before the Lord again, Satan does, and says, All that a man has he will give for his life. This is now in Job chapter 2, verse 5. All that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and then he will curse you to your face. And you know the story. Satan smites Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And now as Job sits mourning on an ash heap over the loss of his family, he's reduced to trying to treat himself by lancing his own boils with a scrap of a broken pot. He was a humble, blameless servant of God, a loving and devoted father, and a leader among men. And Now he's left destitute and abandoned and plagued by some dread disease. And no one comes to bind up his sores. No one comes to offer comfort. His wife's response This is all God's fault, she says. Obviously, God has not been faithful to you. He has not done good to you. He has turned his back on you and cursed you. So you should return the favor, Job. Do you still hold fast your integrity, she says? Curse God and die. So her advice is blame God. Eventually, some of Job's friends arrive to to supposedly comfort him. Their counsel is, Job, this is all your fault. Obviously, you have not been faithful to God. You are suffering because you have done something wrong. At first, they gently suggest Job's guilt, but eventually, as you go on through the book, they directly accuse him. If you would only repent of your sin, Job, God would remove his heavy hand from upon you and restore you to your former blessed position. So their advice was, blame yourself. And how does Job respond? Remarkably, as we read earlier, Job responds in worship. Job 1.20 says that Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground, and he worshiped. And most of us are familiar with with the words uh, in that song that we sing, Job's words there in, in chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, and then what does he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And later, in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? These responses are commended to us by Scripture, both in both chapter one, verse 22 and chapter two, verse 10, the narrator provides a commentary regarding Job's responses. "Through all this," the narrator says, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God." And in chapter two, verse 10, the narrator tells us, "In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So we can be confident that job's response that is to maintain a posture of humble worship of the lord and to accept with all humility the circumstances that god has placed him in this is the biblical response to suffering But how do we get there how can we respond to suffering with humble worship well the book of job doesn't end in chapter two there there's a full 40 more chapters that's because suffering really does present some deep philosophical and theological questions And suffering really does, as James tells us in chapter 1, verse 3, suffering really does test a person's faith. When tragedy strikes, we are faced with difficult questions. Questions like, how can we continue to devote ourselves to loving and serving a God who would allow such evil? Does God really love me? Is God even there? And if he's not, why should I even try to love and serve my neighbor? The book of Job helps us wrestle along with Job and the four friends who come to advise him. It also contains direct, a direct response from the Lord Himself, and in Job's wrestling and his friend's advice, and ultimately in God's direct response, we find truths to help us to respond to suffering. This morning, I want to highlight three truths that are threaded through the book of Job that enable us to come to terms with suffering. Three truths that emerge from Job's struggles that can help us respond in worship in the face of trials and testing. Three truths that form the basis for a biblical response to suffering. And I'm sorry I didn't prepare an outline for you. Um, you can appreciate Pastor all the more for all the work he does in getting the outline out ahead of time. But just so you know where we're going, there are three truths. The first truth is that God is here. God is here. The second truth is that God is good and just. And the third truth is that God is sovereign. I'm going to take a look at these three truths that emerge from the book of Job and, and show how these, these truths are the best tools that we have to work to respond biblically to suffering. So the first truth is that God is here. God is here. When I say God is here, what I mean is that God exists. But beyond that, I also want to say to you this morning that God is aware of our sufferings. And beyond that, I also want to say to you that god is present with us in our sufferings i start with this truth that god is here because it's the most basic truth but it's also the truth that is most often brought into question when suffering besets us See, you might not realize it but if you're a christian this morning you have a problem or at least unbelievers around us assert that we have a problem i don't know if you know what it's called it's called the problem of evil You might have heard of it if you took a philosophy class. Uh, Bear with me for a minute for those of you who fell asleep in philosophy class, uh, as did I. In a philosophy class, the problem of evil might be laid out in terms of a logical progression of three assertions. One, if an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent God exists, evil would not exist. Two, evil does exist in many diverse forms. Three, Therefore, an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent God does not exist. But this problem of evil, as it's called, is not a problem at all in the book of Job. No one in the book of Job, not Job, not Job's friends, not even Job's wife, comes to the conclusion that Job's suffering means that God doesn't exist. Instead, Job's suffering is an affirmation of God's existence. You might think that's a strange statement, but let me tell you where I'm coming from. Consider Job's wife's reaction. As Job sits on that ash heap, scraping his boils with a potsherd, she tells him, curse God and die. Now that's by no means a biblical response to suffering. She's angry at God. She's blaming God. She's making herself out to be God's judge and jury. In her eyes, God has done wrong against her husband and God should be condemned. Wrong-headed though that response may be, contains one very important kernel of truth. That truth is that there is something fundamentally wrong with the existence of evil. She sees what happened to Job, she ju- judges it to be wrong, and therefore she feels justified in condemning God for committing evil. This sense of having been wronged, the concept of injustice, only makes sense if there is such a thing as right, if there is such a thing as justice. Job's wife may not be a philosopher, but but she knows this. Though she is in error in accusing God of perpetrating evil, she is correct in her understanding that there is a right and there is a wrong and that the right should be praised and the wrong accursed. This sense of right and wrong is universal across all humanity, across all cultures and all times. While we don't all agree on what exactly is right and what is wrong, We all agree that there are boundaries, that those who cross those boundaries have committed an evil, and those who operate within them have upheld the good. And this universal agreement is a powerful argument for the existence of God. If God did not not exist, if there were no all-good God who establishes what is good and right and what is evil and wrong, then how can we assert that anything is right or wrong, good or evil? If there is no God and we are merely time plus matter plus chance, What difference does it really make if someone suffers? We'd have no basis upon which to judge suffering to be evil or wrong. No basis to call suffering an injustice. It would just be the way things are. And everything one day will return to dust. and So it doesn't really matter anyway. In other words, if God did not exist, who is Job's wife angry at? And on what basis can she curse him? But God does exist. And so we do have a sense of good and evil, of justice and injustice a sense that suffering is evil. So we can give credit this morning to Job's wife for getting that part correct, though she's wrong to accuse God of perpetrating evil. And when we suffer, when we encounter various trials, we ought to pause for a moment and understand the very reason that this hurts so deeply, that it seems perhaps so unjust, that there really is good and evil. And that very fact means that there is a God that God is really here. God is, if you will, the backdrop upon which we suffer. So the suffering is real, but there is a a greater reality, the capital R, behind the suffering that gives it significance and meaning. And this in itself is an encouraging thought. But there's more to Job's story than that basic truth that God exists. The story also teaches us that God is omniscient, that he knows all. And that includes the truth that He is personally aware of every detail of our lives, including our sufferings. We see this in the rare behind-the-scenes glimpse into God's counsels in chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 2, verse 3. In 1.8, God says, There's no one like Job on, on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. For God to, to be able to make that statement, he must be intimately acquainted with Job, as well as with every other human being on the planet. So God knows Job and everyone else. God knows all. And in 2, chapter 2, verse 3, God says to Satan, Job still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. God knows the details of Job's life, his response to the suffering, and the depth of his suffering. When we, when we suffer, when we encounter various trials, we ought to pause for a moment and understand God really is omniscient He really does know the way that we take, as Job says in in chapter 23, verse 10. And all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows our sufferings. Our trials are not hidden from him. So God is the backdrop against which we suffer and God is aware of our sufferings. But more than that, the story of Job also illustrates God's presence in our sufferings. We see this in chapter 38. If you're familiar with the the layout of the book, you know that the first two chapters tell of Job's afflictions, and chapters 3 through 37 record a conversation between Job and his four friends. But chapter 38 begins with God breaking onto the scene. God appears in a whirlwind, a storm, and speaks directly to Job. This is a remarkable event. This is the climax and really the reason why all of this was recorded for us in Scripture, that we might hear God's answer to the problem of evil. What is that answer? I'll leave that for my final point. But here I want to make two points. First, simply note that God did not leave Job on his own. So God exists. God knows and hears. And God does not leave Job to suffer alone in isolation from him. When we suffer, when we encounter various trials, we ought to pause for a moment and understand God has not left us isolated from him. God has spoken to us by speaking to Job and then ensuring that his words were preserved for some 3,000 years so that we could know his thoughts. Further, God has spoken to us through many other scriptures. And most significantly, God has visited us in the person of his Son, his living word, who not only taught us, but also he himself entered into our sufferings, taking upon himself the suffering that we deserve, the punishment for our sins, so that we could be reconciled to our creator and have a relationship with him. And because of that, we now have His Spirit living within us, and we are never alone, not even in the longest, darkest hours of our sufferings. So know this, that God has not left us to suffer in isolation. He has entered into each of our personal worlds, into our suffering. He is with us. The second point is this. God's appearance in chapter 38 is an act of condescension. And we talked a little bit about that uh, this morning in men's Bible study. I say that it's an act of condescension because we know what God said to Moses when Moses asked to see God. God said, No man can see me and live. So we know that if God had appeared in all of his holiness and glory to Job, he would have blown Job and his friends away. End of story. But God did not do that. Instead, God humbled himself to appear in a storm. Even still, we know it was an awesome sight. Job's response in chapter 40 verse 4 is telling Job says behold I am insignificant but we can rest assured that had God not humbled himself to appear in a way that was gentle enough to accommodate Job Job would not have been alive to respond at all so again when we suffer when we encounter various trials we ought to pause for a moment and and understand God has humbled himself to enter into our world and to speak to us in a way that is gentle enough that we are not totally blown away, but that we can respond to him. So to summarize the first truth from the book of Job, the book of Job tells us that God is here. The fact that we sense evil and suffering is evidence that God exists. The revelation from the -the behind-the-scenes conversation between God and Satan shows that God is aware of our sufferings. And the appearance of God to speak to Job shows that God is present in our sufferings and that he willingly condescends to enter into our world to teach us through our sufferings. So that's truth number 1. That God is here. Truth number 2, God is good and God is just. This is a non-negotiable truth. God is good and just in all that he does. Even though suffering besets us, though evil multiplies, God is good. God is good all the time. In fact, the book of Job testifies to this truth. If you think about it, the narrator knows that God is good. Job knows it. His friends know it. And God himself ultimately asserts it. The narrator comments in in chapter 1, verse 22. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job did not blame God. For the narrator, blaming God would have been a sin. And where Job's wife was right to sense that her husband's suffering was evil, the narrator here clearly points out that she was wrong to blame God. And Job was right not to blame God. The Hebrew word for blame here is derived from a word meaning to spit out. The idea being that you spit out something because it is tasteless or not seasoned. In the ancient world, seasoning... Was associated with goodness and wisdom for example in psalm 119 103 the psalmist says that the promises of god are sweeter than honey to my mouth promises of god are sweeter than honey to my mouth and he links that sweet taste to wisdom to understanding to truth and to righteousness on the other hand something that you want to spit out because it tastes bad or is not seasoned salt that has lost its flavor as jesus said would be just the opposite, something foolish, false, and wicked. The idea here that Job did not blame God, did not spit out God, if you will, is that he did not accuse God of doing evil. If he had, he would have sinned against God. He would have cursed God to his face, which is exactly what Satan wanted him to do. Had he done so, Job would have failed the test. But he didn't fail the test. He didn't accuse God of being evil. Despite having lost his wealth, Despite having lost his children, despite being afflicted with disease, Job did not accuse God of doing evil. Job knew that God is good. Job's friends also confirmed that God is good and just. We have to be careful when we deal with their advice and commentary. I guess you you could say that it needs to be taken with a grain of salt, or maybe I should say that some of it should be spit out, because it's not all wise and true. It's also long and and very arduous to read through. Hopefully my sermon isn't also long and arduous. But uh, it's tough tough going to to read through what they have to say to Job. Difficult, very difficult at times to pick up their meaning. But they do have a clear thesis that emerges. It's perhaps best summarized by, by a man named Zophar, one of Job's friends, in chapter 11, verses 13 through 20. There he says to Job, If you would direct your heart right and spread out your hand to God, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Then indeed you could lift up your face without moral defect and you would be steadfast and not fear. Your life would be brighter than the noonday. Darkness would be like morning. But the eyes of the wicked will fail and there will be no escape for them and their hope is to, to breathe their last. Their only hope is to die. Uh, Job's friend's message is this. Job, this is all your fault. God is good and just, Job. You have committed some evil. God has afflicted you because of your sin. If you would only turn from this sin, God would remove his heavy boot from the back of your neck and restore to you all the blessings that you once had. Your life would be brighter than noonday. Your future so bright, you'd need to wear shades. But if you continue in your wickedness, you will be doomed to die in darkness and despair. That sounds good, maybe at first. It sounds wise. The problem is that Job's friends don't know what they're talking about. When God appears at the end there in chapter 38, after 35 chapters of this discourse and debate, the first thing that God says is, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Words without knowledge. Job's friends don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what was going on when Satan came to God and accused Job, Job of false loyalty. They don't have the slightest idea what God, God's reasoning is behind allowing Job to suffer catastrophe. But, and give them credit, they get this much correct. God is good and God is just. And they say that over and over and over again throughout their discussions. For example, in Job 8.3, a man named Bildad asks this rhetorical question. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? The obvious answer is no, of course not. In Job thirty-four, ten through 12, Elihu defends God's goodness and justice. Far be it from God to do wickedness, he says, and from the Almighty to do wrong. Surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. God is good and just. This is a non-negotiable, for Job's friends. It's also a non-negotiable throughout Scripture. And when we suffer, when we encounter various trials, we ought to pause for a moment and understand that God is good and God is just. Why is this so important for, for us to know in our suffering? I'll give you three reasons and I'll try to be quick. One, no matter how bad it gets, we are not getting as bad as we deserve No matter how bad it gets, we're not getting as bad as we deserve. The fact that God is good and just really should strike terror in our hearts. He is the thrice holy God. He is so good and so just that no one can stand before him and live. At the burning bush, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. When Isaiah saw God in the vision in Isaiah 6, his response was, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And once... In the Gospels, when Jesus displayed his power, can you remember Peter saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. God is good. God is just. But we, like Moses and Isaiah and Peter, are sinful creatures. If a good God were to give us what we justly deserve, we'd all already be dead. We'd all already be suffering eternal punishment in hell. I think this is a very important realization to come to. God calls us to humble ourselves before Him, to come with a humble and contrite spirit, to tremble at His word. A broken and contrite heart, He tells us, He will not despise. Until we come to this realization that God is perfect in goodness and we are not, and that therefore, apart from God's mercy through Jesus, we don't deserve to live, let alone live a life free of evils, suffering, and pain, we can never come to true humility. This is one place where Job's friends, and at times Job himself, went wrong. They argued that if Job would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if Job were pure and upright, surely now God would rouse himself and restore Job's righteous estate. The idea here being that one could be good enough to earn or deserve God's favor. But this is not true. Instead, Job was closer to the truth when he said, How can a man be right before God? How then can i answer him and choose my words before him for though i were right i would could not answer i would have to implore the mercy of my judge it's in chapter 9. the truth is that we cannot by ourselves be right before god and in our trials and in our sufferings we need to keep this in perspective we don't deserve a trouble-free life we don't even deserve life so when we understand that god is good and God is just, we come to understand, one, no matter how bad it gets, we're not getting as bad as we deserve. But there's some good news. The good news is, two, God has honored the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. The good news is that God in his mercy sent Christ to pay the eternal penalty for our sins. Jesus died in my place. Jesus died in your place. And because God is good and just, because God is good and just, we can rest assured that he will honor Jesus' sacrifice. That's why John writes that if we confess our sins, what, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Christ, God answers Job's question, how can a man be right before God? As Paul tells us, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that what? We might become the righteousness of God in him. And this is really, really, really good news that we need to remember when we suffer, when we encounter various trials. Ultimately, because of Jesus, for those who trust in him, there will no longer be any curse, Revelation tells us. Every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain. All these things will pass away. We really, really need to never forget to remember, if I can say it that way, Need to really never forget to remember this amazing promise. So, in our suffering, as we remember that God is good and just, we ought to be thankful first, we're not getting as bad as we deserve, and second, that God will honor Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. But God does one better than that. There's a third aspect to God's goodness that we need to take to heart, and that is this God is at work to bring about ultimate good in the world and in us individually. Paul tells us this in Romans 8. We're all familiar with the first part of, of verse 8:28, Romans. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. But if we follow along with Paul, he goes on to say that the good is to those who are called according to his purpose, those whom he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, whom he also glorified. So here we see there's a big, bigger picture, that God has a bigger plan. In our suffering, all things work together to conform us to the image of Christ such that what? We will one day be glorified. God has an ultimate good plan for us that is beyond our ability to imagine or to comprehend. Because of Christ's work in us, we look forward to glorification together with him, beholding him in his glory and sharing in his glory. Maybe the best, best way to put it is the way uh, Paul did in Ephesians 2. He says uh, in Ephesians 2, verse 5, that God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, and here's the key part, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us think about it this way God is going to make each of us a trophy of his grace and in the ages to come all the universe is going to look at us and say wow isn't God amazing so again when we suffer when we encounter various trials we need to pause for a moment and understand God is good and just and he's at work to bring about his goodness and justice And in that, he will be glorified and all those who believe on the Lord Jesus will be glorified in him. And the sufferings of this present time will not be worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Okay, so truth number one was God is here. Truth number two is that God is good and just. And thirdly and lastly, the last truth that emerges from the story of Job is that God is sovereign. As we go through the book of Job, after 35 chapters of back and forth between Job and his four friends, God at last, as I mentioned before, God at last reveals himself. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Why has God afflicted Job? Job has cried out to God for a hearing. He has longed to see God, to hear him speak. Now, here God is. What will be God's answer? After all of Job's agonizing, after all his friends' accusations, Surely, God has come to console Job, to lift him up out of the ash heap, to lift the veil between the earth and heaven and explain to him the reason for his suffering. Surely, he's come to vindicate Job in the hearing of both Satan and Job's friends, and then to restore Job on the basis of Job's goodness and recompense him for his sufferings. No, no, this is not what God has come to do. There will be a time when God will reassure with his voice of comfort. There will be a time when he will reveal at least in part, things that we do not know. There will be a time when he will vindicate his beloved, where he does vindicate Job. But in chapter 35, that this is not the time. God has a deeper truth, a foundational truth, that needs to be understood first before all the rest will follow. The truth is that God is sovereign over his creation. This is God's ultimate answer to all the debate and discourse about why Job suffered so. Let me read the first several, several verses of chapter 38 to give you a flavor for what God says. There in chapter 38, we read, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. God is being sarcastic here. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God goes on from here and he asks Job question after question. Have you ever commanded the morning? Has the rain a father? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season? Can you send forth lightnings? Who has given understanding to the mind? The answer to all these questions is simply, yeah, I don't know, not me, not me, right? Job says, no, not me, you God, you've done all these things. You've created all things. You have all knowledge and wisdom and power. You are in control of everything. You are the ruler of all. You, you are sovereign. God's point in asking these questions is to communicate to Job two basic truths. One, I am in control of everything and you are not. Two, I know everything and you do not. I'm summarizing these truths in a single word. Sovereign. God is sovereign. I think Isaiah gives a good definition of of sovereignty In chapter 46, verse 9 of his book, Isaiah writes the words of God. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Truly, I have spoken it. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. This is the answer that God is giving to Job. And because this answer comes directly from the mouth of God, we need to open our minds and our hearts and give it special attention. He comes onto the scene and he says to Job, brace yourself because I'm going to teach you something here. You see, I'm in control. I am almighty. I am faultless. That's verse 2 of chapter 40. Nobody needs needs to or is wise enough to tell me what to do and all my judgments are right that's verse 8 chapter 40 all my judgments are right i run the universe according to my designs and purposes and it all works together beautifully to glorify me i have preeminence i am worthy to receive all honor and majesty and god's silence on all the rest of everything is deafening see god never offers job an explanation for his trials He never reveals to Job his conversation with Satan. He doesn't doesn't even promise to restore Job, though he does at the end. He just says to Job, I am God and you are not. Think about this. Here's this poor man. He's lost all his wealth, his servants, even his beloved children, and ultimately his health. He's endured the false accusations of his friends who were supposedly come to comfort him he has pleaded his case to God and God's response is not a soft one not an easy one to take God says I am God you are not and how does Job respond first in chapter 40 verses 4 and 5 Job says behold I am insignificant what can I reply to you I lay my hand on my mouth once I have spoken and I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. And again, in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask me, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I admit, I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak, I will ask you, And you instruct me. I have heard of you by hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. I think this is exactly what God had planned for Job all along. God wanted to bring Job to the end of himself so that Job would be fully humbled before him. God has tried Job and now. Job really has come forth as gold. Job would not have reached this point because of his possessions. Job would not have reached this point because of his family. Job would not have reached this point even by his obedience and his his offerings. But through his suffering, through losing everything, Job has reached the point of full humility before God. Now God did restore Job's fortune and his family, and his, and his health. We see that in chapter 42. But none of that comes even close to the value of the treasure that Job gained in his submission to God. And this, I think, is the ultimate lesson for you and for me from the book of Job. When we suffer, when we encounter various trials, we ought to pause for a moment and understand God is sovereign. God is in control. And no matter what happens, no matter how painful our past no matter how sorrowful our present, no matter how dark our future, all of it is under God's sovereign control. And our response then is to be one of humble submission. And by that, I don't mean that we don't grieve over the evils in our personal lives or in the world around us. But we need to receive whatever lot God has given us with a humble spirit of trust in God. Trust in God who is in control. Trust in God who is almighty and faultless Trust in God who is all wise and whose every judgment is right. Trust in God who runs the universe according to his designs and purposes such that it all works together beautifully to glorify him. Trust in God who has preeminence and is worthy to receive all honor and majesty. So in conclusion, in, in Job chapter 6, verse 10, Job says this. He says, But it is still my consolation, and I rejoice, despite unsparing pain, that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. I have not denied the words of the Holy One. See, God has not left us helpless in our suffering. He has given us his word. And it is important that we are able to say, along with Job this morning, that we have not denied the words of the Holy One. His words are truth. And they are a powerful weapon that we can wield as we struggle against the sufferings and through the trials and the evils of this life. And that truth for us this morning is that when we suffer, when we encounter various trials, we ought to pause for a moment and understand God is here. God is good. God is sovereign. And he desires us to acknowledge these truths, to fall on our knees and worship him. And to know and trust that no matter what trial we are up against, it will surely redound to His glory as we humbly trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by Your Word this morning. Father, we know that we have all been humbled to, to some extent or another by suffering, by sorrow, by grief. Father, this morning we lay all those things at your feet. We also lay at your feet our our pride. And we humble ourselves before you. We ask us that you continue to make us aware of your greatness, of your goodness, of your presence in our lives, in our hearts. And O oh Lord, we thank you for your mercy that you allow us to endure that you allow us to suffer so that we might be conformed to the image of your Son. Father, help us to receive your your plan with all humility and with all submission and to look forward to that day when we will be rejoicing around your throne, when we will be glorified together with you, and when most of all, you will be glorified above all else. And we thank you for your word that ministers to us in our pain.